weekly summary for September 21st, 2018. Uh, last week we had the uh, bear in the background. Uh, yesterday the market hit all-time highs, so now we got the closest thing we have to a bull. Uh, if anybody has a taxidermy bull, you can send it our way, but we, we're not even really sure what this is. It's a ram. We'll call it a ram. Yeah, we'd have to bring Wes in. <laughs> have to bring Wes in. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, so as, as we say, we're going to go through the three papers that were posted on our site this week. Uh, the first paper that was summarized was written by a good friend of Alpha Architect, Linda Zhang, the head of Purview Investments. The title of Linda's paper was Leverage ETFs, Are You Prepared for the Volatility Jumps? Global Perspectives on the Short-Term versus Longer-Term Risk Profiles. For us in the ETF world, uh, and with the global AUM of leveraged ETFs sitting at approximately 60 billion, this paper researches some pretty applicable things. The three questions Linda asks are, uh, did the leveraged ETFs behave as intended by design? Is the leverage multiple a reliable indicator of the volatility multiple? And then number three, is the leverage multiple a reliable indicator over shorter time horizons? So Jack, um, the first question, did, did the leverage in, in Linda's research, did the leverage ETFs behave as intended by design? Yeah, so in general, uh, what she found uh, is that, you know, and this is basically done just by kind of looking at the 10 largest leverage ETFs, found that they did generate uh, volatility that was kind of similar to the leverage ratio, mm -hmm. right? And just specifically, you know, uh, nuanced detailed papers, they don't dig, she doesn't dig too much into the returns of leverage ETFs relative to you know, if you're 2x lever, did you get 2x the return? This paper kind of dug more into the volatility and whether or not the volatility was similar to the leverage ratio. Got it. So, so is the leverage, uh, or yeah, is the leverage multiple a reliable indicator of the volatility multiple? Yeah, so what Linda finds and, you know, how this is kind of done is just looking at the volatility, you know, you can measure standard deviation variance to think of standard deviation in the paper and basically said, hey, what is the standard deviation of, you know, uh, let's say if you're three times the S&P 500, what's the standard deviation of the S&P 500? What's the standard deviation of daily returns of your 3x lever ETF or ETN, right? And, and, and we would expect that in, in theory to be 3x. That's well, that, that's the question is yeah. our investors kind of getting what they're thinking they're investing for. Right, and and what Linda finds in the paper is that over you know longer time horizons, when looked at you know a hundred day period, she finds that in general the volatility is similar to that ratio. So yeah, and and that's interesting because then what did what did it find over shorter time horizons? So over shorter time horizons, kind of not surprisingly, you find uh, that there can be deviations yeah. between the uh, ratio, and again, so the ratio, how it's tested is just basically taking the daily volatility of the levered ETF divided by the daily volatility of the index in which it's levering, yeah. right? And so over shorter time horizons, there is, you know, a deviation around what the set volatility should be. So if it should be three, you know, over a 100-day period, it's kind of consistent around three, at least for larger indices. 
Um, but for shorter time horizons, like 10, 30 days, it kind of jumps around. But, but that's interesting because kind of the common knowledge uh, for ETFs as I was understood it on leverage ETFs is they reset on a daily basis. So, you know, they always say like you want to own them over a single day. Anything beyond that is, is uh, you know, you can get tracking error and not get the intended results. Um, so that that's, I guess, kind of an interesting result. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that that's the first paper. Um and the summary on the first paper then is over in, longer in terms. general over longer time horizons leverage ETFs on big indices you know are going to generate similar volatilities on, on a levered basis um, you know Linda does find like on some smaller indices there's deviations over long time horizons and again that paper doesn't really look at the returns per se there's a, there's a whole other uh, realm of research on that, which yeah. uh, in, investors interested in leverage ETF should at least examine before making an investment. Got it. Okay. Um, so then the, the next post on our site this week was actually by Wes. Uh, it was a, a recap of a presentation he gave recently. The title of the talk was Momentum Investing, Simple But Not Easy. Uh, so you and Wes wrote the book on this topic called Quantitative Momentum, so we could spend eight hours plus talking about this. Uh, but so we'll just get to the high level. So the lecture addresses four questions that are the most common in relation to momentum investing. Uh, and we'll just go through them one by one. So the first question, what is momentum? Yeah, so momentum as <coughs> defined and how we talk about it is, you know, buying winning stocks. And if you're running a long short strategy, buying winning stocks and shorting losing stocks. So. High level, that's what momentum is. Yeah. Uh, and do transaction costs destroy momentum profits? Yeah, so this one, there's a pretty big debate on it. What I'd say is, um, you know, we have an article that kind of summarizes the literature, both saying that it does destroy it and saying that it doesn't. What I would say is that there's definitely a capacity, yeah. right? But it's important to understand. I would, I, I would highly recommend people reading both sides of it. Uh, we kind of think that the pracademic type models uh, better better uh, model the transaction costs than some of the purely academic models. Yeah, and 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 pracademic translated means some of the uh, practitioners also academic. That is, yeah, right. So okay, um, and then uh, third question, they're the third topic addressed. Is momentum too crowded? Yeah, so a, a common uh, point, which I just mentioned in two, is that you know there is there has to be a capacity. There's a capacity on, on anything, right? Like Warren Buffett can't be invested in micro caps now because he has too much money. Yeah, right? Well, probably. So, yeah. so part of the question on momentum, especially when you say can it exist after transaction costs, is well, there has to be some sort of capacity number. And so uh, an interesting study is done by uh, David Blitz as an interesting paper. It kind of just looks at all ETFs in aggregate, right? And so we know how much money is in ETFs. It's in the trillions of dollars now. And what he finds uh, is that if you aggregate all ETFs by AUM, you see that they basically load on the market. I think the T stat's like 60, something crazy. And then on all of the other factors, which we know about value, momentum, size, uh, 
and low vol, um, there's no significant loading. I.e., if you just look at the AUM, the total amount of AUM invested in like ETFs, they literally have rebuilt the market. So no one's taking a bet, even though there are, you know, hundreds of factor smart beta ETFs in aggregate, they're basically betting on the market. Sense. Uh, the, then, yeah, the, the fourth question can momentum work in the future? Yeah, and so this is one of those uh, hard to answer questions. Um, we, you know, the way we approach it is saying, you know, the way anything uh, can work in the future is you'd have to have, especially something that's like an open secret, right? So the common question is, uh, you know, hey, everyone knows about momentum and so now it's not going to work because everyone's just going to trade, right? And that also coincides with like a recent 10-year underperformance of momentum. So to, to those people, it may be easy to say, hey, momentum doesn't work anymore, right? Um, and kind of what, what we would say, uh, and what I think is true of any investments, you know, scenario is, you know, you, you will have to take some potential like short-term pain yeah. in the interim. And so Wes kind of highlights the our God portfolio, yeah. uh, and, and what we in that study what we looked at was we said, hey, pretend you knew with perfect foresight who's going to be the winning stock in the next five years. So it was a hundred percent look ahead bias study. This is an uninvestable portfolio, but what we found is even if you know with perfect foresight who's going to win, who's going to lose. If you had invested in that portfolio, you could lose to the index for long periods of time. Right. So um, again, if if people think momentum investing is not going to work, then don't invest in it. But um, what we say is for open secret type strategies, there will have to be some pain or some deviations from the index for it to work over the long term. Right. Yeah. Corey, Corey Hofstein had a great paper on it, uh, the frustrating laws of active management, where you, you need you need pain in order to outperform. And Wes, Wes actually just put a great stat up on Twitter yesterday, uh, talking how Warren Buffett from nineteen you know sometime in nineteen ninety the late nineties. Yeah, over over a six month time horizon, late nineties he six months he lagged by fifty percent versus the benchmark or versus the market. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's like, yeah, so you, even if you knew you could invest with Warren Buffett with perfect hindsight, imagine trying to explain that uh, to people when you're down 50% versus the Tracking market. error can be painful. Tracking error is painful. Um, okay, so cool. So, so that's, that's the high-level momentum. You can go to our, our site, and then Wes has all these papers, which Jack mentioned, linked through there, too, if you want to go deeper. Um, so then the last paper this week... Again, is a, this is a highly useful one to financial planners and individual investors alike. It's titled, Illustrating the Value of Retirement Accounts. Now, the common knowledge, Jack, around uh, the biggest benefit of retirement accounts is the ability to defer taxes. Is this true? Yeah, so uh, this was a guest post by Aaron, who did an awesome job on this one, as well as he had a previous article that he's following up on. Right, and so in his previous article, it literally was, I think, titled "Quantifying the Benefits of Retirement Accounts." Right, he was basically like, "Hey, I want to just say, like, what is the benefit?" And kind of high-level takeaway from that article was, in his opinion, based on the way he modeled it out with certain assumptions, 
was that a bigger benefit of retirement accounts is really due to the fact that you don't have to pay capital gains taxes on rebalancing or just within your portfolio. You don't have to pay taxes on dividends and, and income, yeah. right? And so he quantified that and that was kind of, you know, I would say the, the first article, uh, which I'd recommend you kind of read both if you're super interested in this, but that was his takeaway was that it's actually being able to defer the taxes within the portfolio component that yields a pretty big benefit to investors. Right, because so not not the initial deferring taxes on the income, right? Which is what most people assume is the biggest benefit. Deferring, okay. So yeah, so so the biggest benefit is deferring taxes on on what? On the portfolio side, right? So if you're invested in like a sixty forty portfolio, yeah. and you assume that you are receiving, let's just say for argument's sake, a two percent dividend yeah. and a three percent coupon. Yeah. Right, you obviously, if your capital gains rate, you know, your two percent dividend just became one point six percent, as you had to pay twenty percent taxes. Yeah. Your three percent coupon, let's say your tax rate's thirty percent, just for argument's sake, that now goes down to two point one percent. Right. So, and, and again, I I read the article for the assumptions because you know one could argue and say the that the model's incorrect, and it's just you know based on those assumptions. Right, there is a benefit. All of us can agree that if you don't have to, within the uh, compounding effect of not having to pay taxes over a long time period. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, so he, so he gives a couple of examples in the paper, um, and the that so that that's the main point he's driving at. Um, how do investors need to look at the three factors of the income tax rate, the rate of return, and time frame? which you kind of already hit on, but... Yeah, so, I mean, Aaron kind of says, hey, there's like three kind of variables embedded in here, right? So one is rate of return. If you're trying to do an apples-apples comparison, let's just say that's the same for a retirement account, a Roth account, or a taxable account, right? So you just keep that same time frame. We all kind of know what that is, right? Time frame is how long are you investing for? Yeah. So that's kind of set. Um, you know, tax rate is actually an interesting one, right? Because you can assume that that's staying the same or, you know, but who knows, tax rates have changed drastically over the past 30 years, right? So that's obviously a variable and they're all important. Um, and I think on Aaron's new article, if I were to say, uh, everyone should probably read it just to understand he kind of quantifies a potential benefit of a Roth IRA uh, and he tries to walk through that benefit. Um, so I, I'd highly recommend you read it. Again, there's a lot of assumptions embedded in there, but yeah. it's definitely uh, education. Right. But but useful. So kind of summary, useful to read to figure out: Should I invest in a Roth IRA? Should I invest in a taxable account? Should I invest in a four hundred one k to kind of make those decisions? Yeah, it, he attempts to quantify the benefits and pros cons. Cool. All right. Um, so that that concludes our show for this week. Uh, yeah, we'll see you guys again next week. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy.
The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC, all rights reserved.